You're listening to Teen Table Talks with Teen Health 101, a podcast where teens have a roundtable conversation about health topics that impact the youth and teens today. Join us at our lunch table, where a group of teens come together to debate, joke, and share experiences about topics from nutrition to mental health to the healthcare industry. All right. Hi, everyone. This is Teen Table Talks with Teen Health 101. I'm Athena Crick, a sophomore in high school from California. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything health that relates to the youth and teens today. So today we're going to be covering the internet's bizarre and health and nutrition diets and which ones you should leave behind. And we are also going to be having a Q&A session where we answer some of your health and nutrition questions. So I'm currently joined by Monica Oslander, a dietitian who started Essence Nutrition, which is a group um, practice of seven registered dietitians and She basically oversees all of Essence's private client work while focusing on Essence's corporate wellness programming um, and non-private client nutrition consulting services, as well as um, school wellness programming. So she's basically on the consultant board for Teen Health 101. And um, basically, you guys already know Teen Health 101, we try to combat health misinformation on the internet. So She's on our consultant board and she oversees some of the things that we're doing. So um, before we kind of get into anything, I kind of wanted to talk to you about basically what you do and what is a dietitian? um, How do you kind of manage your work and what exactly does your job entail for you? So um, a registered dietitian is someone who has completed an accredited program. Um, Now it's going to be a master's degree starting quite soon, but right now I guess you could technically still have an undergraduate degree in dietetics and nutrition. Um, After you take a bunch of prerequisite courses, which is basically a pre-medical track, um, you sit for a residency matching program. It's called an internship. And after that's completed, you take a board exam and then you're licensed into whatever state. Some states have reciprocity, but you also have to opt into your state licensure. So first I was a clinical dietitian. I worked in a hospital um, caring for patients who were admitted. And then I started my private practice um, about five years ago um, that provides outpatient services. So um, the dietitian is the protected title. We also can call ourselves nutritionists, but nutritionists are not dietitians, if that makes any sense. Okay, actually, how are, how are they different? So like an RD, a registered dietitian, is the legally protected one that went through all the schooling and the accreditation, um, whereas a nutritionist doesn't really have any weight behind it. Um, although sometimes like I will just informally informally refer to myself as a nutritionist, but the RD is the legit one, so to speak. Okay, got it. So what inspired you to kind of take on this career? I feel like I always see, especially on TikTok, I'll see dietitians or nutritionists talking about like how they struggled with their relationship with food or um, they wanted to help people because they felt like um, they had come to such a great place with their relationship. So with food. So what kind of inspired you to want to take on this field? Um, Well, I think, you know, a lot of teenage women, especially in in my generation, struggled with food issues. I certainly did, although I don't think that was the driving force behind why I wanted to pursue this career. Um, I think it actually all started really in middle school, just when I informally learned that food was something beyond, you know, deliciousness. And I just was kind of fascinated by it. Um, And then later on in high school, I 
developed Crohn's disease and nutrition became like kind of pretty relevant to my life. And I just still thought it was really interesting and wanted to study it, but I actually didn't um, major in nutrition and dietetics because like you will find out soon, you get to college and you're like, all right, I'm gonna major in STEM. And then you see all the class lists and course catalogs and you're 17 and you're like, I don't really wanna take organic chemistry right now. Like I'm here to have fun. And so I took a bit of a non-traditional path to get here, but yeah, that's the story. Yeah, well, um, that kind of answers our third question, <laughs> but um, <laughs> what does Essence Nutrition value and kind of communicate with its clients, with its members? Um, I kind of wanted our listeners to get to know a little bit more about your work specifically at your private practice. So I called it Essence Nutrition because the essence of something is its truest value and its its innermost core meaning. So I didn't, you know, name it anything about diets or, you know, solutions or body or fit or anything really related to the physical. It really um, spoke more to me to, to speak about what's inside and someone's core values um, and how food approaches that. So that's kind of um, speaks to our philosophy, which centers around something called intuitive eating and another philosophy called health at every size. And we believe that food and nutrition is at the core, is part of the core of your being, but it's not 100% all of your being. And we approach healthcare um, from a global and holistic aspect that is very honorable and compassionate, inclusive, diverse, and and fun and gentle and, and not stigmatizing in any way. So that kind of explains the, the name and the philosophy. Yeah. So um, I noticed on your website, you guys have like a whole section for meal plans. Um, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. So it's called the sure. cocoon. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and uh, what it entails? Sure. So, well, everything with us is butterflies because it's our logo. It's a symbol of transformation. They're so beautiful. They change from one organism kind of to a completely another one, but without sacrificing, you know, something about who they were to begin with. There's a lot of, I like metaphors. I was a linguistics major. Um, so it's called the cocoon because it's the incubator for metamorphosis, because what we found is that a lot of people um, felt really helpless with wanting to make nutrition change. And they didn't necessarily want to work with, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a dietitian, which we understand because it can be very, it can feel a little intrusive and, and it's also very expensive, um, 100%. But it's worth the investment, as thousands of people can tell you. But, you know, someone who kind of just wants to get their feet wet and change, call it, we call it the gateway drug, so to speak, um, they can sign up for something that we as the team created, which basically every week sends them two full days, or it's, it's either two or three, I think it's two, it's been so long, um, of breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes with everything that we've curated. It sends you a list, it sends you what to cook now, what to cook later, and kind of just gives you a little inspo and ideas. And this honestly predated Instagram, which you know is how most people are getting their recipes now, but it makes everything really nice and organized and kind of you know packed up neatly every Sunday night when you do your shopping or your ordering. Well, that's great. Um, I just want to, before we really get into like the debunking all the different diets. Um, if you want to maybe add something about uh, kind of what you do as an educator um, and a dietitian and how you communicate that with the other people um, on your team. Sure. Um, so initially it was just me um, in private practice and I burnt out very quickly and it wasn't scalable and I was very kind of bored by myself and felt stagnant. So now there's, there's 10 more and people come and go and um, you know, our consultants are, you know, sometimes they have babies and they go on maternity leave and they come back or they have an other job and they come back. So it's really nice to be able to manage a team um, and to educate them as well as allow them to educate me because a lot of them still work in hospitals and, you know, we all have different unique strengths and skill sets and personalities. And I think that really adds a lot of color and taste, so to speak, to our to our team. 
Um, as far as educating goes, you know, a lot of people seek out a dietitian or they assume that it's going to be a very didactic. It's going to be an education session. And it can be that way if, if the client wants that. What we really practice and prefer to do is what we call client-centered therapy, which is we let, let the client in the driver's seat. So we're there like kind of in driver's ed to make sure nobody rolls off the road or careens and gets in trouble. But, you know, if someone doesn't want to be lectured and doesn't want to know, you know, and, you know, we're there to basically say, what do you want to learn today and how do you want to learn it? Because we like would assume that we know everything, right? And we can throw whatever you want at you. But if someone is like, listen, I'm just here to get breakfast ideas, or I'm just here to talk about yogurt or my cat or something, it gets your time, you know? So we, we're not necessarily just to educate, but also to kind of unwrap people's relationships with food, their relationships with their bodies, how it pertains to their family and their life and self-care and health at a global level. I mean, the things that happen in our, in, in our sessions are very, very unlike what you may think happened in the nutrition session. I mean, sometimes, you know, that we're working from home, you know, my, uh, like people, my husband or whoever's, whatever will overhear um, me speaking out the client because like everything's muted and everything. They don't know who it is. There's no violation, but you know, it seems like there was not a lot of food talk there and like a lot of, and I'm like, yeah, no, it's, we talk about the past. It's, it's almost kind of creeps into therapy territory sometimes. Yeah. That's super interesting. I actually didn't really expect that. Um, yeah, me neither when I became a dietitian. So that's part of the reason I kind of changed my, my dog snoring, so sorry, um, paths is because I was like, I am I'm not a therapist. I can't hear about people's like pedicures all day. Like this is ridiculous. So I had to spice it up. That's really great. Um, and I think that's actually kind of inspiring just to like get to talk to people about their relationship with food, especially. I think it's such a like complex field, especially now with so much pressure and I feel like just society as a whole. Um, so yeah, it really is. It has changed a lot, especially since I went into it and I thought it was going to be more like, you know, eat this, not that, get healthy. And it's just really taken on a different life um, of its own, which is so much, so much more profound um, than eat this, not that. If you want to learn what to eat, like Google, you know, like that's not really what we do. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, speaking of what not to do, <laughs> Um, we're going to go into our debunking diets little session. Um, so the first one we have that we were asked about was the military diet. So essentially the military diet is like a three day, not necessarily cleanse, but it's marketed to be like a, ten, uh, you lose 10 pounds in three days, um, breakfast, lunch, dinner, no like sauces, or you don't really cook with too much oil. Um, and it's, it's not very limited, but it's also kind of limited to the types of foods you're eating, like saltine crackers and cottage cheese and grapes and tuna and bread. So what do you think of it? Um, I kind of personally tried it a while ago. And of course, you're not, it's, most of the time it's bogus. I feel like for people who eat unhealthy and go into it, maybe they might lose the weight. Um, but what do you think of it? And is it just like a marketing tactic to make it seem like you're going to lose all this weight in three days? Well, I think diets in general just make these inane promises that never come to pass and weight-centered care is just a, a cycle of stigma and shame and, and disappointment. Um, so whether it's the military diet, the dog diet, the cat diet, the mom diet, the dad diet, they're all the same. They belong in the trash. Um, you know, anything that cuts out nutrient groups, anything that focuses on weight, anything that says this is good, but this is bad arbitrarily, anything that's only for three days. I mean, you know, it's all the same. So, you know, I would, 
any, it, honestly, when you started talking about it, I was like, this sounds like a stomach virus. Like, you know, um, losing weight, you know, is, is, is a delicate topic. Um, our care is not weight centered. It's something that we consider, um, you know, we're not blind, weight blind, but we never base our care recommendations on what we say on someone's weight. Um, and again, we subscribe to this health at every size, um, philosophy. So I would nix the military diet. I would nix most diets, although we can certainly discuss and pick them apart. You know, it's just, it's, it's not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's not sane. And what happens with diets is they, they do irreparable, almost irreparable mental damage as well as physical damage. So I would leave the military diet in, in the past. Yeah, for sure. I don't really love it either, but, um, the next <laughs> one is keto. Um, I just want to bring in my little two cents of it. Keto is basically like you eliminate carb centered foods, which is like fruits, bananas, for example, like someone with keto probably won't touch a banana. Um, so how is it beneficial for some ways? I know it originally started because a doctor wanted to um, see if kids with epilepsy could like lower their seizures and it did um, when they went on the keto diet. So what do you think about it? Um, is a low carb li lifestyle a good lifestyle? Um, I know that we kind of just touched upon it where if you're removing nutrient foods out of your diet, it's probably not the best. Um, but in what ways maybe can we talk about if it's beneficial or not? Sure. So you're right. The, uh, originally, the ketogenic diet was developed for children with intractable seizures. And in some very severe cases, we do still use it um, when clinically appropriate. It's really done under very intense monitoring, sometimes even in an inpatient setting. It's not just like eliminate all carbs. It's actually, a, there's a very precise ratios depending on the age, stage, and medications of the, of the patient. Um, and it doesn't even work for, for a lot of seizure activity and disorders. And so it's really just like kind of a lasted resort. There's a terrible amount of side effects and growth gets compromised and yeah, so I don't really know. The diet culture community sunk its claws into that and took it and ran wild with it. And it's not something that we recommend. Um, again, mentally, it, it causes a lot of anguish and suffering, not to mention brain sluggishness. It can call, cause elevated triglycerides and liver issues, constipation, altered microbiomes. And the microbiome is like such an important thing to human health. Um, we would never tell people to eliminate fruit. Fruit is such a wonderful amazing, delicious, nutrient dense group. And, you know, you said would never touch a banana. I touch all of the bananas. In fact, bananas are like a, a daily staple for me. I work with athletes. Bananas are a huge, you know, hugely important um, athletic food. And so, yeah, the keto diet is just another one of those people are just looking and grasping and so desperate for, to believe that something, a regimen, a protocol, a cleanse, a pill, a detox, something will lead them to health. And that is just not how it works. And unfortunately, the keto diet has been, you know, I, I feel it's been bastardized. I feel bad because there are really some, there is a pediatric population that is working with pediatric neurologic dietitians and they're trying to reduce their seizure activity and, and to have diet culture community just completely bastardized. It must be really offensive to them. Um, so it's, it's sad, but yeah, we, we do not recommend keto for, for basically anyone else. It's a terrible way to live. I mean, I think yeah. I've seen a lot of people saying, you know, it makes them feel good. I mean, if well, yeah. If, if, so it's all about where you start from. So if you start from a place of an F and you get, you know, and, and you don't eat vegetables and you don't eat, you know, anything wonderful or a nutrient dense, and then you start eating 
different foods, you know, you might feel better. And that's why a lot of people who go gluten-free feel better because they're eliminating cakes and rice and pasta and cookies and whatever, they're not eliminating rice, but they're eliminating all these things that don't make them feel that great. They might have latent IBS or something. Gluten is also high in FODMAPs and people with IBS can be FODMAP intolerant. So it's not necessarily the carbs that are bad. You know, it's the company that they keep or this, which is why it's so important to work with a dietitian to evaluate the scope of your entire intake at large. Yeah. Um, well, that's a kind of great way to explain how it's beneficial and not really as much beneficial. Um, and then we have the last two, which is intermittent fasting and calorie deficit. So I think these are a little bit um, self-explanatory. Intermittent fasting is basically just eating and certain numbers of certain hours of the day. So I think the popular ones are like 12 to 8, 10 to 6, 2 to 10. Um, so you basically eat in like a window. Um, so I think where a lot of people get this twisted is like they'll use intermittent fasting as a way to not eat at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you think about it? I think it's just, I mean, we're already naturally fasting when we're sleeping. What do you kind of, what's your take on it? And do you think it's necessary to live your life? Like certain hours of the day you need to eat and certain hours you're completely like away from food. What do you think about it? I think you're very perceptive and number one, thinking that it can be a cover for eating disorders. So a lot of eating disorders start out as very well-intentioned efforts to quote, get healthier. They start out as diets. They start out as, oh, I'm just going to start to do something that, you know, is healthy. And mm -hmm. it just, it spirals. So true. Um, and number two, yeah, you're right. When we sleep, that's us fasting. So um, physiologically, a lot of mammals need to sleep. Um, and that is when our body rests, repairs, and restores a lot and, and does a lot of cellular uh, metabolic pathways at a very microscopic level that basically cleans out old cells and toxic cells and damaged cells and says bye-bye. And we're not busy thinking of what we are thinking when we sleep, we dream. We're not busy with like a lot of, you know, other cognitive functions and digestion. And we're not, you know, it's kind of that stuff goes on the back burner. The, the way I describe it is like it's an empty office at night and the cleaning crew can come in and do their job because there's not people walking around making a mess of everything. So so yes, um, fasting in that respect, fasting is important, but you sleep at night, right? So we've, we've seen that humans get the same benefits from quote fasting when we just leave about 11, 12 hours between dinner and breakfast the next day, which is normal. You have dinner at seven, breakfast at seven the next day. So, you know, there's no need to, to impose this strict clock on you. It's, that is very disordered. I, again, I think it leads to a lot of mental disruption social issues. I mean, who's, who want, no one wants to go on a date with you if you can't eat past 4 p.m. And if you're starving yourself until noon the next day or something, that whole morning, you're going to feel terrible. You're not going to want to work out. If you do work out, you're going to compromise performance. You might feel faint, sluggish, and you might be more apt to binge and overeat or overindulge later in the day if you're starving yourself in the morning. You know, so not being dishonest with your hunger and fullness is never a good idea. And I think intermittent fasting just doesn't honor our intuitive and innate hunger and fullness in any way. It doesn't speak to the quality of the habitual intake pattern. Um, and it doesn't really even, even make sense because like you very aptly said, I think we can just do this while we're sleeping. And yeah, so my best friend and I joke, like she's like, when it first came out, she was like, is intermittent fasting? Isn't that just like the time that I'm not eating in between meals? And I'm like, yes, well, you're right. Yeah, so the problem is people go, oh my gosh, I lost weight. I feel amazing is because these sometimes are people who do their demon eating, you know, after 7 p.m. So because of alcohol and that's when we drink and that's when we're up late and that's when we're snacking and not, and it's not the fasting, it's that you're not 
you know, getting into the cupboard after after seven, eight, nine, whatever time p.m. If you're hungry before bed, you got to have a snack. That's what I always say, and and I do sometimes because I'm I'm hungry, and when I'm hungry, I eat. I think yes. wisdom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think calorie deficit kind of plays into that. Where basically, before we really talk about a calorie deficit, is where essentially quote me, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but you have a certain number of calories where you burn in a day. So um, you kind of just subtract however much you're burning and eat that amount. So basically it's like calories in, calories out. Um, so I think with intermittent fasting, those kind of interchange where if you're not eating, you're obviously going to be in a calorie deficit and eating less. So right. how do you think it actually works in terms of being healthier with the calorie deficit. Cause you, yeah. So losing weight doesn't mean you're healthier. So that's yeah. point number one. So like I just had a stomach virus last week and I probably lost weight. Did not did terrible unhealthiness. Right. Cause I mean, terribly ill. So yes, if we're looking at rats and dogs, humans, mammals, and we look at them in a lab and we want them to lose weight, doesn't mean get healthier. Okay we will deprive them of calories and that will quote work. Now, does that make you healthy? Does it make you beautiful, cool, kind, smart, you know, open up opportunities in life, guarantee you a spot in heaven? Absolutely not. Just makes you lose weight. Who cares, right? So yes, calorie deficits, deficits tend to work. They also lower your basal metabolic rate because the less you weigh, the smaller, you know, slower your metabolism is. It's a downward spiral. Pretty soon you're eating nothing and you're still, and you're going to gain all the weight back. It's called weight cycling. And then your metabolism never really fully recovers. So that, that's another reason why the 9,000th reason why diets don't work. So like I said, yes, calories in, calories out is a scientific concept, but it basically just says that we are units of heat and that is all that reduces us to, to chemical, to chemistry, which is not fair. Um, that said, um, you know, there are people who, who, who pursue weight loss, quote, and health. And yes, you know, losing weight can be a part of health, but it's never, never should be the, the central mode of care. It should honestly, it's more like a side effect. It's like, yeah, well, I started eating salads for lunch instead of fast food and I lost 30 pounds. I don't really care, but what I care is what happened to, you know, the way that you view your body, what happened to your lab markers and your blood, what happened to your risk factors for disease, what happened to your wallet, what happened to how, you know, so it's the company that it keeps, if that, if that makes any sense. Um, so yeah, when you start counting calories, you really start itemizing your life. It's really joyless. It's terrible. It's obsessive. It's how a lot of the eating disorders start. Um, again, I'll bake innocently, but we wouldn't recommend it. It doesn't even make sense. You really can't calcul calculate anything about your basal metabolic rate unless you know you happen to have access to a, a, a DEXA machine. And even then, like let's say I went into a DEXA machine and I calculate my basal metabolic rate is this. And am I going to count exact calories all day to reach that? And even so, no one knows how many calories are in this apple versus this apple versus this apple. It's just a fool's errand, and it's really just something we – we as dietitians do not concern ourselves with unless somebody is critically ill and we're feeding them through a tube and we have to know how many calories they're getting more about. So they stay alive. So that's, yeah, so we, in, in our world, we don't, and in the eating disorder world, which we have, um, you know, we do see uh, patients with eating disorders. We, we can calculate their, their needs with athletes. We can calculate their needs, but then we can kind of look back at what they're eating and say, yeah, they're getting about that. Like it's good. We never get like so specific that we're like, you know, moving beans around and pebbles around. Yeah. Um, I think we had a question actually about like how to calculate your calorie deficit. And everywhere I've seen it, it's always like I've calculated it on like an online ca calculator 
and every time it's always a different. And how do they know? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the there's predictive equations, but they're predictive. They they don't mean anything. They don't know anything about your actual metabolic rate and the rate at which you breathe and how you move and your medications and your body type and your health and what you're actually eating. So it's like, who cares? It's just this like weird 150 year old science that like never really progressed. And again, somehow diet culture sunk its claws into and it just like a pit bull cannot let go. We just need to like, let it go, let it go. Predict predictive equations are so wrong. In fact, that like, even in my own life, we like, we learn in school, like, you know, nursing mothers need 300 calories extra a day. That is false. For me, it was like 2000. Okay. But if I, but, but the book says this, okay, well, you're not a book, you're a human being. You're a very complicated mass of cells. Like that, they don't know anything. So stop counting things. That makes sense. And you mentioned a DEXA machine. So yes, yes. What is that? That's, uh, that's a, um, a bone. It's actually a bone mineral density evaluator, but also can uh, evaluate lean body mass versus adipose tissue fat mass. And you know, it's useful for detecting osteoporosis. Um, you know, sometimes people who take a lot of prednisone or steroids have a risk for that. It, we sometimes use it in athletes to monitor like their body fat percentages, just not from a weight perspective, but from performance. But that's probably the one of the more accurate ways we have to, um, you know, access someone's basal metabolic rate. And it's really not that interesting to me unless like you know, we can't figure out why someone is not gaining weight. It's, it's really more, for, again, for athletes and for like osteoporosis. But yeah, yeah that's, that's like a, a giant, ridiculously expensive machine that we have. So I actually, now that we're kind of in this whole realm, I wanted to ask about BMI. So mm -hmm. um, I get that it's like such a, again, like so long ago, this so was silly. created and <laughs> it's probably very outdated um bmi essentially calculates your body fat no your body your bmi is the body mass index it's literally just weight height and and like it's and, and maybe gender um we don't we use it in the hospital it was it's basically only now used because of insurance and reimbursement and the healthcare, you know more ass that's out there um it does not honor anything about you besides weight and height and that includes like physical fitness and activity and what you eat and how you eat and when you eat and why you eat and cultural things and you know budget and sensitivity and weight over time and it's just completely misleading you know i used to work in the hospital and it always said on the on the patient's chart like their name date of birth and bmi and i was like why is this the three most important things about someone and number two i would look at it and it would say bmi let's say 32 and i'm like oh my gosh this person okay and i go in with my like I'm all armed about weight loss education. That's what you do in the hospital. It's terrible. And the, the, the patient is made of muscle, their offensive lineman status, you know, but BMI doesn't honor that. BMI doesn't honor frame size, doesn't honor age. It's, it's a terrible thing. It knows nothing about you, but we have to, you know, itemize people for insurance reimbursement. And it's very terrible that we do so. Diet culture, I think, has just like downgraded society in general yeah we've we've regressed we spent our millions of years trying to survive and eat more you know for the for the evolution of our species and for survival and now we're just trying to fancy ways to to eat less and starve doesn't that i mean we deserve to be wiped out noah's ark we out bye <laughs> oh it's it's too much um too much now for the q a portion so you guys sent these in through instagram uh so the first question is what is healthy I feel like it's changed over time. Um, what is healthy? Yeah, you're right. Healthy has changed over time. Um, look at 
look at women, uh, women and men and, and how they're portrayed in medieval art and, and Renaissance art versus now weight perceptions and body image and things have, have really shifted over time. Maybe healthy meant one thing 100 years ago and it means another now. Does it mean healthy that you're living long or living well? Does it mean that you eat five vegetables a day or no vegetables a day? It's a completely quant uh, qualitative term. Um, I think healthy is defined by you. It's, it's the ways that you pursue health in ways that are meaningful and joyous to you and your family and your budget and your culture and your values and what you know you see because you're the CEO of your own body. So yeah, I can tell you what healthy is in my definition, but I don't think it particularly matters um, unless you ask me for my opinion and you're paying me for it and you do what I say. Because if not, you know, who cares? You can, you're free to ignore my advice. So healthy is, is yeah, the pursuit of health is living well, happy, happily, joyously, nourishing your mind, nourishing your body in a nice, comfortable, fun way. Yeah. And um, so another one we got was how can you maintain weight after you've been under a calorie deficit for so long? So we kind of talked about calorie deficit a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but more maintaining weight after you've been eating little for so long. And I think that's where a lot of people mess up, where it's like you, at least in my case, I feel like I had done intermittent fasting for a while. And then I went from like, you know, a few meals, like two or three meals a day to going like binging where like I was deprived for right. so long. So how that's what that happens? It's weight cycling. So when you diet, you weight cycle because your body is, thinks you're starving and you're trying to catch up and it's this terrible cycle. And then you, your, your metabolism slows down over time. And we see so many clients who have this irreparable damage to their metabolism. It's sluggish. And you know, the thing to do is to stop focusing on your weight and make peace with your body and make peace with healthy behaviors instead of you know, the, this physical focus, which is, all right, what's done is done, nothing to do. I'm going to focus on eating, moving, living the best I can for my body. My dietitian is going to help me with some ideas how I'm free to take or ignore that advice. And, you know, it's going to involve movement, sleep, stress control, eating well, consistently balanced, day in, day out, lots of meals, lots of snacks, lots of fluids, lots of fun stuff, lots of vegetables, you know, and that's, and it's a long-term thing. And, and it's basically like an old boyfriend, you know, or a, like an old ex-boyfriend, like, yeah, it's done. It was really terrible. Like I definitely did gave myself some trauma, but now I got to rise above it and realize I'm never doing that again. And, and upward and onward. I hope you haven't had that experience yet. If you're under young age. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> um, so the next, the next one is what do you think about losing X amount of weight in a week? Um, those clickbait videos and ads. I think that's mostly marketing. Get off Instagram and TikTok, y'all. I mean, that is just false promises everywhere. Your parents and your aunts and uncles and your babysitters, my generation, lived a much more peaceful life, <laughs> like off of, you know, glimpsing into what everybody's doing and what, quote, works for everybody else, um, you know get a dietitian, get a psychologist. This is these are the, and a nice physician. Those are the people that you can trust with your healthcare. And of course yourself, not, you know, friends and random people on TikTok and Instagram. Um, but you know, it's, it's, there's no such thing as losing weight in a week, feeling good, healthy. What like, again, it's, we, we have to, we have to shift our way of thinking if we're going to have that conversation. So I do not support it. <laughs> um, so the next one is one of the biggest issues I have well, we already kind of touched about on this, which was um, weight cycling. How do I manage this? I feel like I keep fluctuating, but nothing works. Right. Well, it, again, ex old boyfriend, right? Let's not dwell on the past, move forward. So how do we move forward? You know, I can't individually evaluate the, this mysterious you, but you can start by taking a good hard look of, of 
you know, the first step in the scientific method for me is, is evaluation. So what's my baseline? What, how do I eat, move, sleep, and live right now? And, you know, how do I think I want to change that and what makes sense and what would be exciting for me to, to change that and not in a, from a place of restriction or deprivation, but in a place of like, all right, well, you know, I know I need to eat more plants and vegetables. So where can I add those in throughout my day? Um, how am I going to get those? How am I going to buy those? How am I going to prepare those? And just having those little conversations with your, yourself and making those small incremental comfortable changes and not doing anything drastic or that seems, you know, depriving because once you feel deprived or once you feel like this is wrong, I don't like this or it's uncomfortable, it's like a, it's like quicksand. It'll just eat you up. Yeah. Um, so I think the next one is how do I get out of the mindset that I'm starting a diet and instead try to start a new lifestyle? My mental right. usually stops <laughs> me from achieving my goals. Right. So yeah, I, I like the idea of reframing whatever you're doing as a lifestyle, but it better be a lifestyle, not a diet that you're calling a lifestyle, which is, you know, all these wellness influencers will say it's a lifestyle. I just don't eat carbs. Like that's a diet. Um, you know, so a lifestyle is no, it's something that, you know, you woke up today and, and braided your hair and put on this pink shirt. It, it wasn't, it wasn't forced upon you. It wasn't uncomfortable. It wasn't stigmatizing. You, you didn't like resent it, right? It's just a lifestyle. Like I wake up on Sundays, I do my hair, I put on my pink sweater. That's a lifestyle. Okay. So life, a healthy lifestyle is again, defined by you, a qualified healthcare practitioner, hopefully a registered dietitian, and you guys can iron that out together. And you know, the way that you make it joyous is by finding your inner motivation and your inner, you know, your inner peace and your inner wisdom and a dietitian and a psychologist can help you do that. Um, you know, infuse that together with the actual actionable behaviors because it should never feel forced or, or painful. Then it's a diet. I think some of the best advice I kind of got was don't pick up anything that you're not going to do for the rest of your life. Don't yeah. or, you know, it, we, we, we actually like to say that just because something is a healthy behavior, if it causes you stress, it's not a healthy behavior anymore. Mm -hmm. So that you are at, I hate the gym personally. A lot of my dietitians love it. They love CrossFit. I heard that it was healthy to go to the gym and run and I hated every second of it. That caused me more stress, which was, stress, which was more health damaging than being at the gym. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if a healthy quote behavior, exercise, whatever vegetables is causing you more stress than it, than it should, it's no longer a healthy behavior and you have to ditch it. Yeah, for sure. Unfollow people on Instagram who make you feel bad about yourself. Those, those are also unhealthy behaviors, TikTok, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest part of like everything, which is like seeing people on social media. Yeah. Yourself. Well, 20 years ago, you did it. You were living in blissful peace with with my AOL instant messenger and away messages. Nobody talked about each other's bodies 12, 20 years ago. It was ridiculous. So yeah, blinders. How does one tell the difference between binge eating and emotional eating? It can overlap. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's medical criteria for binge, binge eating disorder that we don't really need to go into now. Um, all eating is emotional. You can eat out of happiness, not just sadness. So we, we like to say that that's not, that's kind of a weird, like anachronistic term. We don't really like to use, but if it's stress inducing, if it's done to cope, if it's done, you know, out of spite, fear, anxiety, or negative emotion, it could be, you know, un, un, harmful, quote, emotional eating. Um, binge eating is eating more than a, quote, normal amount of food in a normal amount of time. Usually it's done alone in secret hoarding. There's a, a, a emotions associated with it. It can be done 
you know, out of deprivation or, you know, the eating disorder world is, is deep. Those are both things that we would encourage people to explore with their dietitian and their therapist. But, you know, usually what we find is emotional and binge eating happen because of something, like there's a trigger, there's a something to someone or a diet and it's, you know, you're coming off of it and you're just so hungry and so over hungry and so overwhelmed and emotional. Um, and those are, those are signs. Those are, those are warning signs that something is amiss. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of these are about weight loss, which just says, yeah, well, that's the, that's the world we live in. That's diet culture. It just says so much about everything. Um, the next one is my doctor told me that if I lose weight and keep it off for 10 years then I'll never gain it back again. It was something about the fat cells that become adjusted to the new weight. How does this work? Find a new doctor. <laughs> like that is not a thing. Yes. Fat cells, um, can shrink in size. They generally don't shrink in numbers, but like that has nothing to do with you, your health and what you should be eating. And there's no such thing as like, oh, you won't gain it back for 10. Like find it, find a new physician, <laughs> find a physician that, that takes weight off the table and doesn't make that the focus of your care. Yeah. Um, oh, this one is the, how do I find a proper calorie deficit? You can't. Uh, you don't. <laughs> you find a, you, you find a good dietitian and a therapist and, and a good family and friends and animals. Yeah. Uh, how do people with allergies healthily create a diet for themselves? Um, Easily. Um, there's so many alternatives now. Substitutes, my son has food allergies. Um, it's easy to manage when you have a dietitian because we happen to know about all the products and how to, you know, make recipes and find, you know, close loopholes and stay safe and, you know, have protocols for you, family, caregivers, travel. You just have to consult. I would really just consult a diet, an allergy specialist dietitian, which I happen to be. Um, but today living with food allergies is, is, is very doable. There's obviously, there's lots of risks involved and, you know, it's, it's a scary way to live certainly, but you know, it's, it's, it's fun as a dietitian to, to piece together puzzles for people because they can really live extremely full, healthy and exciting lives. Yeah, for sure. One of my friends, she's allergic to like basically peanuts and all types of nuts. So she incorporates mm -hmm. almond flour into her oatmeal every morning. And so she's saying her doctor and her nutritionists are working with her and they're saying hopefully in like two or three years that it'll kind of be a little bit less and she'll be exposed to um all these different type of like seeds so her body can know how to handle it which i think is great yeah we do a lot of um oral immunotherapy immunologists are doing more of that where they microdose people and you titrate it up it's done in a very controlled way um but there's really exciting innovations in, in food allergy and immunology in the next five, 10 years. Yeah. Um, someone said, I'm not sure if nutrition dietitians deal with this area, but do you have any tips on binge eating? Once I start, I can't stop and it's hard to realize when I'm full. Yes. So that's very typical of binge eating. Um, we would work with an eating disorder therapist, an eating disorder dietitian like our team has and, and help, you know, treat basically this, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mental health disorder. It's a serious mental health disorder. Um, so it's, you know, I can't really give you any like tried and true tips other than like we have to seek help um, yeah. with with it, you know, with with these kinds of behaviors. For sure. Um, what's a good source of protein other than meat or tofu? I don't like tofu because I heard soy products were bad for a woman. How does that even happen? Um, yeah, that's a myth. You can have tofu and tempeh. What we try to steer people away from is processed soy products like soy nuggets and soy powders and potions. Um, tofu and tempeh are wonderful sources of protein. They're actually complete sources of protein that have all of the amino acids that we need. Um, if you're just like tofu and tempeh out, 
Um, beans and legumes and peas are wonderful sources of protein. You can pair them with grains and starches and um, like you know, stuff like that to get a complete protein. Um, so there's there's a lot of great and mushrooms actually have a nice little amount of protein in them as well. Um, we have one of our dietitians is actually plant based, so she's very creative with this and knows all of the products and things that you know live that plant based um, lifestyle. But yeah, tofu and tempeh can be very safely consumed by anyone who doesn't have a soy allergy. Yeah. Um, why are GMO products so bad? Is everything isn't everything GMO now? How do we know the organic products we are buying? don't have harsh chemicals? Um, GMO products have not been proven to be harmful in any sort of way. In fact, they um, you know, probably feed and, and, and lessen malnutrition in millions of people uh, worldwide. I rely on science. I don't rely on you know, um, fear. Um, we, we say fear, facts, not fear. You should follow Food Science Babe on Instagram. She's a food, uh, I think she's a chemical engineer and um, she, like post a lot about GMOs. Not everything is GMO. There's only like seven or eight GMO crops in the U.S. anyway. They're not inherently unsafe. They're not lab, you know, rats. You, like IVF babies are GMOs. <laughs> you know, they are any, it's, it's everything, everything is GMO. Um, I mean, like everything that, it, it's not, like I'm, trying, I'm trying to say is that they're not harmful. You shouldn't be afraid of them. Organic is not necessarily healthier or better. It's also more expensive. I'd rather people eat fruit and vegetables at all, then, you know, only eat organic ones. You're in California, I'm sure there's a lot going on there. Um, GMO simply means that an organism of one DNA has been placed into another, um, but that basically happens kind of naturally over very long periods of time with evolution and crossbreeding and cross-linking. It's, if you want to be mad at someone and be afraid, be afraid of food politics and lobbyists and food industry and big food, um, that your plate is entirely political. GMOs are not the problem. Wow. Well, I actually didn't really know that. So thank yeah, you. food agriculture is and food food politics is like fascinating. Yeah. Um, one of the questions is: Is sugar from the fruit the same as sugar in candy? I feel like both are bad. Uh. No. So sugar in fruit is is fructose, um, and sugar in candy is usually sucrose, maltose, something of that. All sugar gets converted in your body eventually to glucose, blood sugar, um, which helps us fuel us and fuel our brains, which is why the keto, another reason why keto is so ridiculous because we need glucose for our brains and our muscles. Um, but uh, yeah, fruits also come with fiber and, and phytonutrients, all these plant chemicals. They come with water and a million vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and again more phytochemicals whereas candy is fun and you know it's not a health food but when you eat candy you don't eat it because it is a health food you eat it because it's candy and it's easter and halloween it's amazing um you know so i i wouldn't get too caught up in with sugar and and whatnot i would if you're eating candy all day every day you know that's a problem obviously if you're only eating fruit all day every day that's also a problem so it when you are imbalanced there we find problems for sure um so before we wrap it up the last question is the best piece of health or nutrition advice um it's funny since you guys are young <laughs> I would, well, number one, get off Instagram and TikTok, like just listening to health and wellness, bogus, hocus pocus people. And number two, um, sleep, because uh, sleep is wrapped up in your microbiome and sleep is wrapped up in your skin and digestion and your neurocognition and basically everything to do with health. And we find a lot of people having issues with sleep that trickle down into nutrition and hormones and metabolism. And now as, as young people, it is your time to sleep. Yeah. Sleep now. I have a baby. Sleep now. <laughs>
Um, so yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to our guest, Monica, for joining us today. You can also find Monica socials at Eat Like Monica on Instagram and check out her website, EssenceNutritionMiami.com to find recipes, pre-recorded webinars on everything related to nutrition, meal plans, and so much more. So be sure to follow this podcast on your listening platform to stay updated on new podcasts and let us know your thoughts and feedback on our socials and through our website, teenhealth101.org. So thank you, and we'll see you next. Thanks, Athena.